The great tragedy, which is the story of human sinfulness, began in a garden long ago when a serpent whispered into the ear of the mother of the human race a lie. In that story, so rich and layered, so filled with spiritual and psychological insight, the serpent is introduced to us not as an agent of force or terror. It's not said that the serpent tried to overpower Eve, that he tried to scare her, that he menaced her or frightened her. Rather, according to the scripture, the primary attribute of the serpent was that he was crafty. The most crafty of all of the animals in the garden. And the serpent begins by whispering into the ear of Eve a lie, or at least a question that suggests a lie. Did God really command you not to eat of the trees of the garden? Of course, God hadn't said that. In fact, God had given to Eve and to Adam every tree of the garden to eat except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree bore forbidden fruit, and it was prescribed by the divine commandment. But that's the tree to which the devil directed Eve's attention, tempting her to scorn the bounty, the plenty that the Lord had placed in her laps to look for the one thing that God had forbidden her. But the serpent is crafty, and he begins not by immediately suggesting the most kind of outrageous sin. He begins just a little bit, working up to it little by little, as he often does with us, when we're living a holy life and we're serving God well, he doesn't begin by tempting us to something huge and obviously wrong. He starts with something subtle to see if he can make a little crack in the armor, a little opening through which he could enter. And so he does with Eve. And she's tempted first because the fruit looks good for food and is pleasing to the eye. Her senses are tempted, in other words. Seems like it would be something delicious to consume, something pleasing to look at. And then after that kind of gluttony, which is a lower sin, the temptation rises. She noticed that the, tree is that the fruit is desirable to make one wise, and this is vanity. And only at the end does the devil suggest the great apostasy, the unthinkable pride. Only at the end does the devil say, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. But Eve does. She reaches out and takes the fruit. Turning away from her loving father, she looks for her happiness in something that couldn't satisfy in a poison tree. And she sinned, and Adam with her, and they fell from grace. And the whole tragedy of human sin begins that way, with that temptation in the garden that wormed its way in little by little until the disaster fell, and all the rest of the human race has been marked by that original catastrophe. All our struggle with gluttony and lust, with greed, with vanity and pride began there in the garden. But today, in the gospel, we encounter counterpoint to that story of human sin. Today, the second Adam comes onto the scene, not weak like the first Adam, but strong and destined to be victorious. 
He goes not into a garden, but into a desert, the exact opposite of the lush paradise with which Adam and Eve were surrounded. The Lord goes out into the place of scarcity, for it's also the place of combat. He goes out into the wilderness in order to fight with the same serpent, which caused our ruin in the beginning, in order to do battle with the same temptation. St. Thomas Aquinas noticed that all three of the temptations that the devil puts to the Lord in this story correspond exactly to the temptations which attracted Eve's gaze to the apple. She saw that the apple was good for food and pleasing to the eye, the temptation that comes through the senses. And here we have the devil saying, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Eve saw that the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom, and it appealed to her sense of vanity. And we find the devil tempting the Lord, throw yourself down from the parapet of the temple, and the angels will catch you. And finally, Eve desired the fruit because it would make her like God, a kind of idolatry of the self. And the devil tempts the Lord to that too. All these kingdoms of the world I'll give you, if you will bow down and worship me. But where the first Adam fell, the second Adam was triumphant. Where the first Adam was defeated, the second Adam was victorious. Where the serpent emerged over the first Adam, having stolen him away, so the second Adam sends the serpent running because he has come to set right what went wrong in the beginning and by his combat with the devil in the desert. The Lord meant to teach us how we too can fight, how we too can prevail. There are many things we could notice about the Lord's combat with the devil in the desert that would be instructive to us when we have to also do combat with the same serpent who comes to tempt us. But this evening, I want to draw our attention to just one of those things. According to the scripture, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes out into the desert And yet he prepares himself first for the combat. According to the gospel, he fasts for 40 days. And the Lord's fasting in the desert, of course, set the sacred pattern for us. Why we keep every year this holy season of Lent after the image and pattern of the Lord's original fasting in the desert. The Lord prepared himself for this combat by fasting, not because he needed it. For he didn't need it. But we need it. The Lord didn't need to fast, but we do. And by fasting, he showed us how. He taught us how to use a spiritual weapon by which we can put the devil to flight. And so in this season of Lent, as we practice fasting in a special way, we read this gospel and we have the opportunity to reflect on why fasting is a spiritual weapon that helps us chase the devil away. The first thing I want to suggest about why fasting is a spiritual weapon has to do with how it is that we're often snared into sin. The temptation of Eve in the garden started with an appeal to the senses. The apple was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. And as the temptation get going, it was various good aspects of the apple to which the devil drew Eve's attention. It could give knowledge. It could make you like God. And while the devil drew her attention to all these good aspects of the apple, what happened was that she forgot the divine command. She forgot her loving father. 
and mindless of God. She was mindful only of the temptation of the fruit. And that's how it happens to us, too, when some temptation is getting a hold of us. It draws our attention to some pleasant aspect of the temptation until we forget the most important thing. When a man is considering lying or cheating, for example, perhaps in a business deal or perhaps on his taxes, he doesn't think about the evil of it, doesn't think about the harm that it does to others, the tempter tries to draw his gaze to what's attractive about the sin. He thinks about the money he could gain. He thinks perhaps about the good that he could do with it. Maybe even he uses that to rationalize the dishonesty to himself. And he forgets about the order of justice. And he forgets about the commandment, you shall not steal. And he forgets about the spiritual beauty of honesty and uprightness. And so he's snared. And so he falls. What disposes us to fall into that trap? To have our vision and our gaze riveted onto the pleasant aspect of the sin or the temptation, forgetting the aspect of malice, is a disordered appetite. We love the things of the world too much, and it warps our judgment, and it draws our gaze. And so if we're going to successfully do combat with the devil, we have to learn to mortify our desire for the things of the world. We have to fight with it sometimes. We have to restrain it, and that's where fasting comes in. Fasting in all its different forms, and I speak here broadly of fasting as just the act of self-denial, is a kind of spiritual training. When we refuse to indulge our appetites for the things of the world, we weaken those appetites a little, and they have less power over us, and they don't warp our judgment, and they don't cause us to be so forgetful of God in the moment of temptation. When we're hungry, for example, but we choose to fast, we remind ourselves that we are not slaves, that we are free men and women, that we have dominion over our passions and over our choices, that every desire doesn't have to be satisfied, that every urge doesn't have to be indulged, that we were made in the image and likeness of God, that we can stand upright, that we can wear the crown. When we fast, we exercise our dignity, and we enter not into the slavery of worldly pleasures, but into the glorious freedom of the sons and daughters of God. So that's one reason why fasting makes a spiritual weapon. But there's another reason, too. When Eve fell into temptation, it was because she got forgot about the call of God. And fasting is meant to help remind us of that. There have been throughout the history of the world and various philosophies and various religions the kinds of fasting that were born of pessimism, born of sorrow or despair, born perhaps of some hatred of the body or some feeling of unworthiness or that things could never be right. But Christian fasting has never been like that. Christian fasting really has always been motivated by joy. In the gospel, Jesus says that his disciples weren't fasting during the time when he was on this earth because he was with them. And it was when he was taken away that they would fast. (coughs) As Christians throughout the ages have always done. We refuse to satisfy our appetites for the things of the world sometimes because we know that we're made for something better. Christian fasting is pointing toward a true banquet, which is in heaven. And just like a man preparing for a banquet, 
who knows that soon he's going to have set before him a wonderful feast, will refuse if you offer him some junk food. Refuse because he doesn't want to ruin his appetite, doesn't want to destroy his hunger for the feast. Refuse to satisfy himself now because he knows that something better is coming. Just so the Christian in this world fasts sometimes, refuses to satisfy our hunger for earthly pleasures sometimes because we know that something better is coming. Because we know that God our Father has made us and loved us more than we can possibly imagine. Because we know that he has called us to a destiny greater than anything we can conceive. Because we hope one day to enter into eternal life and gaze upon the very face of God. We hope that one day we will see his beauty and his majesty be caught in the embrace of his power and his love and know a happiness greater which everything that eye has seen or ear has heard or that has entered into the heart of man. And because we're looking forward toward that, to the wedding feast, to the banquet, to joy beyond all measure, because we're looking forward to that, we can't completely satisfy our desires for the things of this world because they're not enough because we're made for something more because we want to keep our spiritual hunger keen and when we keep it keen it chases the devil away he can't tempt us with bread or with vanity or with all this kingdoms of the world when we have it fixed firmly in our heart that we were made for heaven and for eternal life it makes us strong in the moment of temptation. So friends, we begin this Sunday, this great season of Lent. And as we do every year, we have set before us the model of our Lord's fasting in the desert. We serve a king, my brothers and sisters, who doesn't only lead from the back. Our king has entered into the battle. He has joined the arena. He has engaged the combat. We see him fighting for us and with us against the devil in the gospel that we heard today, and that's meant to give us courage. It's meant to give us courage to fight. This particular Lent, perhaps you know that the devil has been whispering something in your ear. Perhaps there's some sin in your life which you know you need to part company with. Perhaps it's something serious, but you've been ignoring it or rationalizing it. Perhaps it's something more minor, but you've gotten comfortable with it then it's time to fight. Perhaps you've been fighting for a long time and you're weary of the struggle and you're getting discouraged. Then look at the king going into battle, encountering with the devil in the wilderness and take encouragement. For if we fight, we don't fight alone. We fight with him. And as we take up in this holy season of Lent the ancient spiritual weapons of fasting and of prayer, which the Lord taught us how to use, and modeled for us, we can do so with every confidence. We begin every year on Ash Wednesday listening to a proclamation from St. Paul, a proclamation that fills us with hope to renew the struggle against sin and the quest for virtue and for the face of God, against every despair and every temptation to flee from the battle. The apostle says this, Behold, now is the very acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation.